and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Welcome to IOM3 Investigates. I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at IOM3. And my guest today is Neil Glover, our new president. Neil is Head of Materials Research Central Technology at Rolls-Royce, where he has spent 25 years and gained experience in aerospace and marine sectors. So Neil, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to be here. Good, excellent. So would you like to tell our listeners a little about your background? Yes, indeed. Uh, as you say, I've been at Rolls-Royce for 25 years this year. My current job is, is Head of Materials Research in the Central Technology Group of the company, but I've worked across uh, a lot of roles in and around material science and uh, across all the different sectors. Uh, originally, I, I studied material science at Cambridge. I did natural sciences and came to material science in the final year through that course. And I think I was a little bit unusual in that course, and it was my intent to do material science right from the start, whereas many came to it from a physics or chemistry background. Um, and that, that really strengthened through the course. I enjoyed the, the practical engineering side and the, and the blend with, with mm -hmm. deep technical science. And I enjoyed the mix of theory and practical. Then I, I kind of joined Rolls-Royce in 1996, and um, I worked originally on high-temperature nickel metallurgy, nickel-based superalloys, and then I, I moved and ran a titanium team for a couple of years, looked after fan and compressor materials for gas turbine engines. After that, I moved down to Bristol, where I ran the defence materials group, looking after all of our materials technology for defence, aerospace, and marine gas turbines. And I ran failure investigation across the whole of aerospace at, at the same time, sort of two jobs. Then I moved into the submarines business where I did an R&T role and then back into a more of a technology role, more, more similar to what I'm doing now, where I, um, I looked after the university research network for two years. And then I ran the aerospace materials R&T program for nearly 10 years. And then finally, two years ago, I moved into the role I, I currently have, where we're looking at longer term technology for the company as a whole, looking um, to the future of aerospace and then beyond wider applications. That is quite a packed career, isn't it? Um, so what would you say has been your highlight so far? It is really hard to say. I mean, we are very lucky working in a big company like Rolls-Royce that there is such a breadth of activity. So you can do a whole range of different jobs, which otherwise might need you to move a company. But that's all possible sort of within the, within the one company. I think in terms of highlights, Many of the roles I've had when I was a student, I would have thought of as, as kind of you know, dream roles, fantastic, fantastic roles to have. Failure investigation was always a really, really interesting area to work in. It's, 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 it's that sort of problem solving, uh, piecing together evidence and working down from sort of engine level, gas turbine level and component level, right the way down to the, um, to the microstructure and the mechanics of what's happened, what's caused the, the, the problem in service, and then helping to identify the fix. And, and in that, it's really that, that blend of you, you can be looking at the whole um, sort of thermal mechanical behavior of a component, but then working right down to the level of the, 
the crystallography and the, the dislocations and, and mechanical and corrosion environmental interactions using tools like uh, electron microscopy or even atom probe and micromechanical testing to try and understand what ha what's happened and build up that picture. And that, that really is a, a fascinating area. And then running the university research program and later the, um, the whole aerospace materials research portfolio is just fantastic. And the opportunity to work with um, academic partners and industrial partners around the world, across the UK and, and wider in Europe and America and the Far East, and working on technologies from sort of uh, polymer composite materials through to um, high temperature metallics and uh, fluids and elastomers, high temperature ceramics for the, for the hot zones of the engine. That range of technology and that ability to work with so many really knowledgeable people is just amazing. And I think so many of the academics that we work with and the experts are so generous with their knowledge and their time. And you learn so much. It, that side of it is fantastic. And then through the sponsorship of research that we do in the university base, we're able to kind of sponsor and, and train so many, so many PhD students who then go on to work either in our company or in supply chain companies or in, or in academia or beyond. And then you see them later on in their careers um, and you meet them in, in sort of other scenarios. And it's, it's just great to see so many, so many familiar faces and so many people who've come through that talent pipeline. It feels like a, you know, a real contribution to have made. So that, that, that really is a highlight. That sounds fantastic. And yeah, it's, it's one of the, the nice things to, to meet people again several years later and see how well they've done. So again, you've done so much, but what would you still like to achieve? Well, my current role is really, really interesting. And, and it's a really fascinating time, I think, to be involved in aerospace and we've driven technology for lighter weight components and higher temperature performance components in particular to improve the efficiency of gas turbine engines, to reduce emissions and to reduce fuel burn. But we, we stand now at at a tipping point really and a, and a change in technology and clearly the the drive for decarbonization and the drive for emissions reduction is is stronger than ever um, and that's um that's the underlying motivation behind looking at technology changes and looking at hybrid and electric flight in particular as a focus area for, for my current activity and then looking at other complementary technologies like uh, alternate fuels that might affect the, the sort of combustion processes within the engine. But in particular now, looking at hybrid and electric flight, we're having to deal with a whole new range of materials challenges. So as well as the, the structural components that we would be you know, familiar with, we're looking at magnetic materials, we're looking at materials for high temperature, high voltage insulation, looking at the, the materials for thermal management of electrical machines and how they will perform and how they will contribute in an aerospace environment. So it's a, re it's a really big challenge to kind of build a, a new materials capability within the company and to, to introduce that into product and into service. So I think it's, it's an enormous challenge. It's a really exciting opportunity. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of feels like a unique opportunity to be involved in, in implementing a whole new technology into Rolls-Royce and into the aerospace sector in general. So it's very, you know, very, very exciting. It sounds like um, we've persuaded you to become president at a very <laughs> time anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's uh, undeniably true that the, uh, the day job is extremely busy. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> I'm not, fortunately, I'm not alone. Um, I think, you know, 
one of the key things about uh, any technical role, any any engineering role, any role in material science is um, is having the team around you. And I, uh, you know, I have I have 25 years of experience of, of materials for aerospace, but I don't by any means know everything. But sometimes, because I deal with sort of world class specialists all the time, I sometimes feel like I don't know anything. <laughs> I think um, so. It's very much yeah, it's a busy time, but very much got a strong team around me to help deliver all of that stuff and not having to do it myself. Um, sort of that brings me on to IOM3 um, and you're talking about networking and identifying people who can help you find the answers. What has IOM3 meant to you during your career? Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I've been involved, involved with IOM3 since I was a student. Um, at university back in the kind of mists of time and I guess at the beginning of that when I joined it was it was for the same reason as um, as many of the student members join it's kind of recommended it's you're told it's a good thing to do and you join and uh, you go along to the uh, to the talks and, and they're kind of interesting and there's a sense of community and it's it's an opportunity to just kind of join in with things and learn and meet but then as I as I kind of progressed I've been involved in different aspects of the the activity of the institute I was I was on the the local uh, society committee when I was at university on the, the Cambridge and Anglian Material Society uh, and that sort of broadened, broadens you out into organising of events and helping to kind of coordinate things and, and meeting different people from different sort of organisations and then when I since I've joined Rolls-Royce uh, got involved in in local society both the East Midlands Metallurgical Society and presenting at many local society events which is you know a different experience talking mm-hmm. to people who aren't experts in your area and trying to communicate in a, in a different way. I got involved in, in conference organizing committees um, through, through that activity, through the company and through other links into the Institute. And that sort of, again, stretches you and helps develop you because you have to make contact and organize speakers and, and get people organized and, and into an event from industry and from academia. Um, I got involved with the High Temperature Materials Committee and mm-hmm. I secretaried that for a few years, which is a, you know, a, a, another kind of role and brings other, other kind of skills. And then more lately as a, as a trustee and as vice president, which again is, is, a, is a whole new challenge. That's um, in many ways uh, exposes you to the kind of complexity behind the scenes within the Institute and what's involved with really running a, a business. And, and so throughout, I think it's, it's an opportunity to engage more widely with the materials community. From, from the sort of mining, the materials, the mineral, the mineralogy and so on. It's, it's an opportunity to grow your own skills, both technically and, and broader skills, and to challenge yourself. And, and more than that, it's an opportunity to be part of the community, part of the network, and to make friends as well, who, who remain sort of career-long friends. So I think it's a, a, really, good, a really good thing to, to be involved with and to, uh, to try and be involved in as many different ways. I mean, obviously, there's, there's the ch- chartership side, which in a highly regulated industry like aerospace is important and um, which is probably more important than ever these days as people move from company to company in many cases as a kind of independent badge of quality. But I think it's much more than that. It's about sort of broadening your thinking, broadening your experience, having challenges that you wouldn't get in your day job and, and participating. Overall, how does it feel to actually be made our president? <laughs> I suppose it's a cliche to say it's a real honour. I mean, it, it still feels a little bit unreal in some ways. It's not something that, you, that, that I would ever have expected when I, uh, 
when I first joined the Institute. It's, it's not something that um, you ever expect when you become more and more involved with Institute Affairs. And it's almost something that um, when I first uh, joined the kind of trustee board, it's, it's sort of in the pipeline, but you, you never kind of <laughs> somehow it's in the future. So it, it, it is a real, real honour. It's a, it's a great responsibility. And I, I look at the people who've been involved before and what they've contributed. And, um, and, I, and I see the challenge. And I, I guess I aspire to, to leave it in as, in as good a state as I found it and to make my own contribution and, and to move it on. I think um, the role of um, professional engineering institutes in general in, in supporting uh, engineers through their careers and, and supporting the wider society is really, really important. And to actually lead one of those, one of those institutions is, is an amazing thing, yeah. What plans do you have for your time in the role? Yeah, well, I, it's an interesting time, isn't it, to be, <laughs> to be, taking, over, to be taking over anything. Um, I mean, as I look back, I think on the last two to three years um, since I've been involved, more closely with the sort of central activity of the Institute, there's been a huge amount of effort to focus, to, to, to modernise, to improve the delivery of the Institute's services to its, to its members. And I've, I've tried to be a really strong supporter of those. And I really do want to continue with that, that drive and that improvement. I mean, I think, as we say, it's, we've come out of a difficult year. It's been hard work for everyone. And I think we all need a sort of period of stabilisation and, and recovery a little bit as we go into 2021. But then we also need to be forward looking. Um, we need to continue to sort of focus on what, what do our members want in, a, in the new world? How can we best deliver value? And I think an awful lot of the things that we've done have positioned ourselves really well, both for the challenges of, of 2020 and, and for the, the years to come. The, um, the sort of digital refresh, the new website, the, the ability to deliver uh, things like this, through the podcasts and, and webinars is, is really great. And I think we need to continue to develop that. We need to, to have more information more resources available for our membership to draw on our membership across all of the sectors from academia to industry through the value chain, from mining through to circular economy, materials technology, to make a real wealth of information available for our members to draw upon and a wealth of contacts available for them to, to access. And increasingly, I think, to, to have a real global outlook. Careers are, aren't, aren't nationally based anymore. Many of our members, um, will have international modules in their career or will be um, will join as a student and then move internationally for, for much of their career. And uh, for the Institute to be successful, it needs to be able to reach out to people wherever they are. And I think if there are, you know, if there are good things that we've learned from 2020, it's perhaps that you, you don't need to be in the same place. You don't need to be in the same room. You can, you can network with people wherever they are and you can have effective meetings, effective technical exchange and, and share things globally it's different but it's it still works and it can still be good so i think those those are my kind of aspirations it needs to be very much membership focused obviously the purpose and the bedrock of the institute and we need to listen very closely to what members want and try and try and improve that service and i um i also want to sound strange but i want to get out and meet as many of the, the members of the local societies as i can hopefully we'll be able to meet people uh, really in the real world but um, if not, then as, you know, as, as far as possible through, through virtual platforms. Yeah, times change and we move with them. So uh, you touched on how Rolls-Royce 
works with students. So I suppose the ultimate question is, why does it remain important to join a professional institution, um, a professional engineering body? What does it mean for people's careers and progression? Yeah, it's a, it's a question that I guess I often try and articulate. So I act as, have for many years acted as the kind of uh, central point for the Institute within Rolls-Royce and, and tried to kind of uh, coordinate membership and encourage membership and make sure people are progressing. So trying to explain and encourage that, that rationale for joining and, and, and beyond joining for kind of engaging is, is really important. Um, and I think the sort of chartership, the, the quality stamp is, is one aspect that is just that independent sort of badge of quality that you can then carry with you. Um, but it's, it is far more than that. I think careers now are more dynamic and, and flexible than they used to be and, and much more varied. I think my own career of having 25 years plus in a, in a single company is, is atypical and, and will increasingly become kind of a rarity. And so people have, uh, and even greater than before, a, a need to learn and to acquire new skills throughout their career and to have a network which they can draw upon and they can carry with them as they, as they move uh, of contacts and sources of information. And I think also coupled with that, science and technology is, and material science in particular, I think, is, 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 is broader and, and gets constantly more varied and, and more challenging. There seems to be a kind of, there's an explosion in the amount of technology that's available, the number of different new materials, the number of different techniques of analysis, ways of, of probing material structure and chemistry, ways of understanding materials behavior, um, ways of modeling and representing data and analyzing data. It can be kind of bewildering to try and keep up with. And being a member of a, an institution like this is one way to have those those learning resources to have the opportunity to go to events and learn around about these new techniques and to have the network so you, you know who to go to to find mm -hmm. out about these these kind of techniques because you can't know everything yourself and sometimes it, you don't even know what you don't know until you speak mm -hmm. to an expert who, who can sort of tell you well this is the technique that you need but if you don't have that network, then you would never have known that perhaps there was a solution to your problem. You could have been thinking about it in completely the wrong way. So I think there's a, there's a huge amount of strength in that joining the community, being engaged in the community and, and, and exposing yourself to a breadth of what's going on and, and gaining that learning. And the learning can come from sort of unexpected avenues. Mm -hmm. It can come from listening to a talk on something completely different or listening to a podcast or a web webinar on something you know, totally different. So, yeah, I think it's more important than ever uh, to join and to participate, to be an active member. Again, you've, you've touched on the changing times we are in and the importance of materials in decarbonisation and societal mm. issues. I suppose the question is, how do we encourage young people when they are starting out in their career, when they are making subject choices to see the value of materials to society and the world and the difference they can make? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we, we all have a responsibility as materials professionals to, to try and do that. 
um, to try and publicize how materials can make a contribution to uh, societal and global issues. And it, it, it doesn't feel like it ought to be a hard sell. I mean, I think it's materials really does have a very strong contribution to make. So it's, it's not a difficult case to, to try and put. I think if we look at um, all of the major challenges from, from, from aging population and healthcare through to climate and decarbonization or energy security and availability or security of materials and ethical supply chains, uh, resource sustainability, materials is, is central to all of those. Um, and all aspects of materials, which the Institute deals with, uh, for, are central to all of those from the sort of resource extraction and the, the mining engineering right the way through to, to recycling and reprocessing. How we get out and communicate that, I think, is is the key thing. And, and in many ways, I may well be the wrong person to ask because <laughs> I'm by no means a young, a young person sadly anymore. So I think engaging with our um, students in early career community is, is really key and engaging that community in outreach and all trying to be active in, in outreach events and going and talking about material science and, and, and why it's important and what it is um, and how it can deliver. I, I, I go out to schools myself and talk. I've talked to everything up from kind of a year seven at primary school children mm -hmm. up to sort of sixth form and, and mixed groups at schools, which is a, <laughs> an interesting and terrifying experience. <laughs> Especially when you're own children in the audience. It's quite sobering. Um, and I, I talk to universities and, and I talk to uh, kind of more general media engagement things as well. I think it's just trying to be out there, trying to explain what we do, trying to explain why it's important and how it contributes and what being a material scientist is. A broader, what, what science is about. So I think possibly mm -hmm. engaging young people with science at the, at the right age is the, is the key step. And once they're involved in science, they will, they will find their way into their scientific niche. I think materials is attractive enough, I would hope, to be able to, to attract students once they're, once they're into science. So perhaps the battle is uh, selling science at the performative years at sort of transition into secondary school and a little bit beyond. Uh, I think then there's a, there's a task for PEI to be engaged in, in policy as well at national and international level. I don't know that's something you know, the Institute is very engaged in. It's, it's something that uh, I engage in personally through the increasingly, I guess, with the Institute, but also through my day job. And that's mm -hmm. really important. So we, um, the voice of materials is strong and is heard. Absolutely. We're um, becoming a lot more engaged with the policy process mm. than previously. So it's um, very interesting to see how that progresses. Mm. Um, touching on policy and the wider societal impact, what would you say are maybe the key issues facing our sector? At present. And we've talked a little bit about the, the challenges to which we can contribute, I guess, in terms of uh, decarbonisation, climate and healthcare and so on. I think some of the key challenges that face us as a materials community are around the, the delivery of decarbonisation technologies, whether that is uh, sustainable energy generation or whether it's um, in my own area kind of enabling hybrid and electric flight. Those, those challenges are huge. There are challenges around um, waste management and pollution, environmental impact of materials. But perhaps all of that, I guess, comes back in many ways to the, the challenge of circular economy and how can we develop material solutions which 
are fully sustainable in terms of the resource availability and the environmental impact of that uh, resource extraction and processing and then make best use of those materials through their life cycle so they they contribute to those challenges and as optimally as possible but then that we have the ability to recover or reuse their scarce resources at the end of their life and retain their value as high up the value chain as we possibly can and that's something that you know in my in my area, we are clearly very concerned with. We use materials which are of high value intrinsically, in some cases, uh, platinum group metals and so on, which are fundamentally scarce. We use materials which have challenges which are more to do with their um, geopolitical sort of distribution and the environmental impact of their extraction. Um, and we use uh, materials which are just sort of highly processed and therefore... Um, have high added value at the, at the point of use. Uh, and therefore we, we want to recover as much of that value as we can back into high value product rather than put it right the way back to the raw material stage. So I think that whole life cycle thinking, engineering products and engineering materials so that they are best suited for that is a challenge. In my own sort of career, we, we design materials and we design components to deliver a kind of optimal level of service performance. But if you then have to also think about, and, and when this gets to the end of its service life, how will we perhaps repair it or reinstate mm. its condition? Or how will we recycle and reuse it? That then adds a whole other level of complexity and constraint on, on what you can do. And the right time to think about that stuff is right at the beginning, before you lock in problems that then you, you have to kind of engineer your way out of. But it is you know, these things are difficult and complicated. It's changing whole work processes and mm. which is a big ask. It is. We are thinking about that very much in, in the area that I'm working in, hybrid electric flight, we're already thinking about. So how would we service, manage and uh, recycle and, and repair machines? And it's in that kind of thinking that, the, the, again, the kind of whole community that we have within, within IOM3 can then, can then contribute. And the... The strength of IOM3 is very much in having that whole community, I think, who can cover, cover all of those aspects from the, the sort of development of materials and the, the atomistic design of materials through the processing development, through the service behavior, the reprocessing, understanding where the resources come in the first place, how they're extracted, what the environmental impact is. We have all of that within the Institute. So we can make a really strong contribution in, in those sectors. How has the pandemic changed your vision for the coming year and your ongoing presidency? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's really changed everyone's outlook, hasn't it? <laughs> we've, we've been talking a lot about it uh, uh, with my colleagues as we've come to the end of the year. And I think, you know, as we said, it's been a really difficult year. Um, everyone's outlook on business, on technology, on kind of life in general has been changed. We've all faced some some pretty great challenges. And for many people, it's it's had, you know, there's been some some really sad consequences but you know as we look to the future i think you know there is optimism isn't there that we are perhaps starting to come out of the the kind of the worst phases now and, and looking to a brighter future in, in 2021 and i think some aspects of, of life will will hopefully return to normal we'll be able to meet again we'll be able to go out again and <laughs> socialize some aspects i think will be will be changed probably permanently and i think it's it's important that we, um, as much as we go back to the sort of social contact and the human contact, that we, we learn some of the lessons and some of the benefits we have drawn 
from working from home. I know I thought back in March when I kind of left the office and we were going to be working from home for a bit, I kind of thought, well, maybe we're working from home for three weeks. <laughs> and I I could probably manage for about three weeks and then I'll, um, I'll probably find it really difficult. <laughs> and yeah, here we are nine months later and I, I seem to be busier than ever. And, but but also manage, we're managing to function still really well as a as a community, as an industry, as a as a, a society, and and it is still perfectly possible to work. So I think that that remote working, that ability to link up with people, still we will we will still do that and take that forward. And I think it's made us realise that maybe working with globally remote teams, wherever they might be, now doesn't seem so remote anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It, it is no different to working with your colleagues who are just down the road, but in a different sort of spare bedroom or kitchen. <laughs> I think that's something we will take forward. I think it, that kind of remote teaming will, will be stronger. We've all learned some new IT skills. I think the um, we've all learned how to be effective in different ways and how to use the saved time. We're not spending stuck in traffic. I, I don't miss my two hours a day commuting at all. Um, and I think in the case of the the Institute, again, it was perhaps it was brilliant planning. Perhaps it was it was in some respects good luck. But the initiatives that we had launched to refresh the, refresh the digital platform, refresh the website, move to these kind of uh, digital communication tools and things was perfect. I mean, it couldn't have been time better. So we had the tools available to carry on working when the pandemic hit and in a way sort of adapt and transform quite quite quickly. And I think I think that's been great, and I think we can we can take that forward and use that now to to really drive the way we offer services to our members through 2021. Yeah, I think it's um, you know driven us towards flexible working and different offerings, possibly slightly quicker than we would have moved, but mm. overall it does feel immensely positive. I, I know I, I do know when I say all that about that I know it was enormously hard work for the people within the institute to, to do that digital transformation and I, uh, I kind of took the lead as for the trustees but that was just listening and asking questions. I know the amount of work that went on behind the scenes so we should be really grateful to the whole team to deliver that. Wow but as one of the team thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um Neil, is there anything else you want to want to mention? I think my, my message would be just, you know, join the Institute if you, if you haven't already. And if you are a member of the Institute, then then participate and throw yourself into it. And, um, you know, hopefully people will start to contribute material themselves and find ways to, to contribute podcasts and webinars and articles. And, and then we can build up this great, great mass of material that's available to everyone as a a really strong resource excellent thank you and if people do want to contribute to podcasts then do just get in touch with us so uh neil thank you so much good luck for the coming years and i really look forward to finding out how rolls royce develops over the next decade or so thank you thank you should be yeah be an exciting time i think and i look forward to uh, meeting you in person <laughs> excellent thank you For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.